from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at the Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, June 3rd. Today, Mexico enters diplomatic overdrive over Trump's tariff threat. Why Fisher Price kept selling a dangerous product and Japan won't end its ivory trade. This week, the Trump administration plans to kick off negotiations with Mexican officials on trade and immigration. We want to work with Mexico. That's why the president has been asking for months for Mexico to engage, to step up, to do more. Um, We're going to build the wall. We're going to secure our border. And the president's going to do what's necessary to protect the American people. And the stakes are higher than ever. President Trump is threatening to impose a 5% tariff starting on the 10th of June, on all Mexican products going into the U.S. Mary Beth Sheridan has been covering the simmering trade fight for Mexico City. And that would gradually rise each month up to 25 percent. This is all if Mexico doesn't take significant steps to cut down on the flow of migrants passing through the country. And this is just the latest in a series of steps that President Trump has taken that is sort of aggressive on trade with regards to Mexico. That's correct. We are going to do something very dramatic on the border. He's also been really linking trade and immigration. So in other words, he threatened to close the border if Mexico didn't stop the flow of migrants. The big league statement, my biggest statement so far on the border. And of course, that would have a huge economic impact. In the end, he decided not to do that. But he's definitely trying to use the economic lever to push Mexico on migration. And he paints this picture that the U.S. is kind of getting the raw end of the deal when it comes to trade with Mexico. Yes, President Trump does portray trade with Mexico as a kind of win for Mexico and loss for the United States. But in fact, what's happened with many industries is that they've just become super integrated between Mexico and the U.S. And that's meant that, you know, the products become more competitive internationally and certain kinds of jobs have been preserved or created in the U.S. because, in fact, part of the production can be done in Mexico, which is a lower cost area. So this is a pretty beneficial relationship for us in a lot of ways. I think that many economists would see it as highly beneficial. However, it is important to note there are some industries in the U.S. where indeed workers have lost their jobs. There's no doubt about it. So if these tariffs that President Trump wants to impose do go into effect, that that things that are imported from Mexico, they start to get 5% more expensive and then 10% more expensive and then 15% more expensive. Who will that actually hurt? So the people who will be hurt by these tariffs, it's really a wide range of people. These are consumers in the U.S. who will have to pay more, higher prices for things. You have companies in the U.S. who will face less sales because the prices are higher. There's a lot of industries, particularly the auto industry, where Parts are just sent back and forth over the border as though it was part of the United States, almost as though a a company in Illinois was working with a company in Texas. So, you know, the parts go back and forth and, and some work is done here and some work is done there. So for them to have tariffs imposed would really raise their costs. And you have things like fabric made in the U.S. that's sent to Mexico, sewn into jeans or whatever it is. So companies on both sides of the border certainly would be hit. But I think particularly companies that have these very sophisticated supply chains where it's almost as though to them the border doesn't exist. It goes back and forth. All of a sudden the border would exist in a very expensive way. There's things like U.S. beer. Mexico's a huge beer exporter and they import 
your hops and barley from the U.S. That's interesting that beer could be more expensive. Oh, yeah. Mexican beer, certainly. And guacamole, of course. I know people are in a panic about that. Right. And tequila is the tequila market in the U.S. is bigger than the tequila market in Mexico. Wow. So does this stand to potentially hurt Mexico's economy as well? Oh, yes. Mexico is very nervous. 80% of Mexico's exports go to the United States. They're very dependent on trade with the U.S. And the economy here is quite sluggish at the moment. So they're very sensitive to anything that could cause disruptions. So with that in mind, is this threat actually going to work? Will Mexico do things differently because they're worried about the potential effects of these tariffs? You know, the U.S. has basically highlighted three things it would like Mexico to do. One is to strengthen its southern border with Guatemala, which is very porous. The second thing is to step up its crackdown on smugglers. And the third would be to make Mexico what they call a safe third country. In other words, require that if migrants are seeking asylum, and that's really why many of them are crossing Mexico to the U.S., it would require them to actually seek asylum in Mexico with the argument that Mexico is a safe country. And if they're fleeing danger, they could you know, do that here. Mm-hmm. So on those, Mexico has basically said on the last one, it doesn't want to set up that kind of agreement, right? But I could envision a scenario in which Mexico committed to sending more forces to its southern border. There's been some talk of that over time. They're looking at different ways in which they could step up their detention of Central Americans. The numbers of Central Americans have been growing very rapidly. And Mexico has pointed out that it's detaining more and more, but it's frankly not really keeping up with the huge rise. So I think Mexico will be willing to do more. However, Mexico has a very small migration agency. They've never really developed it. Their justice system is not very strong. So there really are capacity issues for Mexico. One of President Trump's big priorities has been the trade agreement with Mexico and Canada, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. What is the status of that? And could that be threatened because of these threats that Trump is making to impose these tariffs? Yes. All three countries have introduced the treaty into their legislatures for approval. This just happened in the last few days. But I think there's both a sense in Mexico that why have a free trade agreement if one side unilaterally can impose tariffs, right? That would make it a harder sell here in Mexico. And I think equally in the United States, there's people in the U.S. Congress who also feel that the tariffs run in the opposite direction of, you know, a free trade agreement. So this could even complicate the passage in the U.S. Interesting. So the the thought, at least in the U.S., is that what's the point of going through all the work of putting in place this trade agreement if President Trump gets to just do what he wants and impose tariffs when he feels it's necessary? Right. President Trump is using certain emergency powers that, you know, normally one party usually can't just raise tariffs on the other in a free trade agreement. That creates a lot of concern among the trading partners about, you know, when is the next time that emergency powers might be used. So what is a summit that is happening on Wednesday and what can we expect from that? So the Mexicans have really gone into diplomatic overdrive. They're really eager to find some sort of negotiated solution. So The foreign minister flew up to Washington on Friday and immediately reached out to Secretary of State Pompeo and to Jared Kushner, the President Trump's advisor and son-in-law. And the Mexicans announced there would be a summit on Wednesday. The Mexican delegation will be led by the foreign minister, the U.S. delegation apparently by Pompeo. And Mexico has sent a whole number of ministers, the economy minister, the agriculture minister. And they're all up there right now trying to figure out a negotiated solution, and try to figure out some way to head off the tariffs. 
And the timing on this is really interesting because all of this panic is in reaction to these threats that President Trump has made. And yet Trump is in the U.K. right now and he's not going to be around for all of these Mexican officials coming to Washington trying to come to an agreement. It's true. It's uh, You don't see certainly yet any sign that Trump views the negotiated solution as imminent. He's kind of disparaged the idea of uh, these meetings saying, well, we've talked for years, it's time for Mexico to do something. The Mexicans are being very careful to send positive signals. The president, Lopez Obrador, yesterday released a message that he considers President Trump a friend. The Mexicans are really trying to stay away from any language that would be really inflammatory. Having said that, they're entirely capable of, you know, pursuing legal action, of coming back with retaliatory tariffs of their own. So they are speaking very diplomatically, but I imagine they're also communicating that they too could take steps that would hurt the U.S. Mary Beth Sheridan is a foreign correspondent based in Mexico City. I was recommended The Rock and Play by several different mothers. They described it as a miracle worker that really helped their baby sleep and get to sleep and stay asleep. This is Laura O'Brien. I live in Arlington, Virginia, and I have one daughter. Her name is Julianne, and she is two. Laura fell in love with the Fisher-Price Rock and Play the day that Julianne came home from the hospital. I remember putting my child in the rock and play the first day that we brought her back from the hospital. I received the deluxe Fisher-Price rock and play. is the version that actually rocks on its own. And in addition to that, it also plays soothing music and has nature sounds that you can choose from. So it like had this magical effect on babies. Like, babies just loved it. That's financial reporter Todd Frankel. He said that the Fisher-Price Rock and Play was immensely popular because in addition to the magical automatic rocking feature, it only costs between $50 and $80, a pretty affordable addition to a nursery. But back in April, something happened. Out of nowhere, in some respects, the Consumer Product Safety Commission recalled it, basically took it off the market, said all $4.7 million need to go. They said that it was responsible or somehow associated with about 30 deaths of infants. Todd says the CPSC deemed the rock and play unfit for babies because children could turn over and suffocate. But a lot of parents are still using these sleepers, even after the recall. You know, you hear the word recall, and like, oh, the problem's over, let's move on. But product recalls are notoriously ineffective. I think the estimate's about 10% of products that are in people's homes after they've been recalled will be removed. You know, especially with a product like the rock and play, parents love it. I think as long as the product is out there, that has a reputation of being a miracle product that allows your child to fall asleep. When you're in a stage where you need sleep more than anything, you as a new parent, you're going to use it. They're like, you know what? That's not going to happen to me. I'm, I'm a careful parent. You know, I'm going to keep it, you know, especially since it works. Um, and I'm not going to stay up with this crying infant all night long. Todd wanted to know how a product like the Rock and Play could have been on the market for 10 years before it was recalled. And he wanted to find out 
who ends up making sure that products like the Rock and Play are vetted properly in the first place? So I was trying to find out how this product, on the face of it, goes against the American Academy of Pediatrics safe sleep guidelines. Like, so every parent now has it hammered into their head about this idea of back to sleep. Like you put your baby down on its back, flat on a crib, you know, because you're trying to avoid this infant sleep death. You know, you hear about SIDS and stuff and, you know, it's every parent's worst nightmare. And, and so doctors, pediatricians have been hammering this into parents' heads. It's widely known that this is the way they do it, back to sleep. I think they launched in the, in the mid-90s as a national campaign. You know, it's even on like baby food jars and it's everywhere. And, and the whole idea is to avoid infant sleep deaths. And so along comes this product that is an inclined sleep product. And it's the first one ever on the market in the U.S., and the incline in and of itself, if you look at it, and depending on how you interpret those guidelines, violates those safe sleep guidelines. So right from the start, it's like, how did this thing get on the market? But if there are widely known guidelines that say that babies should be put flat to go to sleep, then how was this product allowed to come to the market? And that was sort of the story. It's like, yeah, how did this thing come to market? You know, Part of the answer is that the American Academy of Pediatrics has safe sleep guidelines, but they also don't have a say in what comes to market. There's lots of products that they don't like that are out there. And I think, though, the parents, when they buy things, right, you see this stuff for sale at Target or on Amazon, you're sort of like, oh, yeah, I'm sure someone's must be AAP approved, American Academy of Pediatrics approved. And it's not. It doesn't have to be, certainly. So as this product began to get sold and people started buying it in mass, it sounds like people, experts, pediatricians were looking at it and were saying, I don't think it's safe to have a kid sleeping the whole night at this kind of 30-degree angle. Were those concerns raised publicly? Yeah, it was sort of remarkable to go back and look and see the number of pediatricians who were like writing letters to the company or writing on blogs or just sort of telling their, you know, families within their own offices, you know, I don't, I don't really don't like this device. I'm not I'm not happy about it. But the federal regulators who federal regulators don't have the power to keep products off the market for like no reason or or just a suspicion and you know, it comes back to these guidelines, right? The safe sleep guidelines are based on data and science and also to some guesswork and some sort of best practices. And our system is set up to not so much listen to that as to listen to evidence, the data that comes in from, you know, accidents and injuries. So once these reports of incidents where, where kids had been suffocated, once those started coming out, how did federal regulators respond? So, you know, there was, uh, within the agency, I think there was some controversy or some debate about exactly what was to blame. And that's the problem with infant sleep deaths in particular, is that they're very hard to diagnose and figure out what exactly is causing them, right? So you have deaths that just happen, like SIDS is actually like a natural phenomenon that doctors don't understand. Some kids just don't breathe, you know? But tied into that, then there's also kids who, you know, turn over and and asphyxiate on their blanket or on the side of the device. Or so there's all these different things at play. Um, also, you know, kids who are sick. You know, if a kid who has a, you know, was born prematurely and it has a bit of an illness, is that the product's fault? You know, and so you had this fight within the agency about exactly what is to blame for these deaths. And when did they start taking some action on this? Last year, they issued a warning, and then. Earlier this year, they issued another warning saying, you know, we have 10 deaths that we know about in the Fisher Price product. And then Consumer Reports actually came out and they obtained records showing the number 32 deaths. They said, you know, the number is actually 32. Now, some of those deaths were, you know, ones you wouldn't necessarily blame the product for, like kids who were really sick or, or were put down with lots of blankets around them and maybe they suffocated in that. But 
that prompted the American Academy of Pediatrics to say, we don't recommend this product. And not they were recommending before, but now they were coming out and saying, we don't like it. This should be gone. And that put pressure on the CPSC, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, and Fisher-Price to pull it. And that's what sort of led to that. And for the parents that you talked to who are the parents of kids for whom it did happen to, what do they say about all this? They're sort of blown away by the whole thing. You know, at least one mom was telling me, you know, her, her son died back in 2011. And she had no idea that the product had might have played any role in it. And it was only with the recall, you know, this year that she realized that, oh, maybe my son, you know, didn't die just accidentally. Maybe it was something more than that. And so they, they've sort of been taken back by the whole situation, sort of you know, reliving these horrible things. What do you think the story of these rockin' plays in particular say about the industry in general? So, you know, the industry, I think, wants to do well in many cases, right? I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't assign them bad motives, but our system is set up where it reacts to a problem rather than preventing it. I mean, you assume when you go into a store that the product has been vetted for safety, it's been tested, that someone has said, you know what, this thing is okay to use with your child and use for the use described. Like, they don't have a way to pre-validate these sort of things and sort of look at them and sort of say, yes, this is safe. You know, you need something to sort of show that it's dangerous, which is not the ideal system. Todd Frankel is a features reporter for The Post's financial desk. Fisher-Price said in a statement to The Post that safety is the company's priority number one and that the rock and play met all regulatory and safety standards. The company also said that, quote, Fisher-Price has a long, proud tradition of prioritizing safety as our mission. We at Fisher-Price want parents around the world to know that we have every intention of continuing that tradition. And now, one more thing about ivory stamps in Japan, from the Post's Tokyo bureau chief, Simon Denier. Hankos are a personal stamp or seal. They're the equivalent of a signature. So if you sign any document, if you open a bank account, you stamp them with your personal stamp. Sort of the premium hanko for the last five decades has been a hanko made out of ivory. It was originally a marketing campaign to kind of associate ivory with good fortune to try and sell ivory hankos and make more money. And it caught on, and so ivory became the premium product to make a hanko. More than 200,000 elephants have died since 1970 due to Japan's ivory trade. Now, Simon says that the country is facing increased international pressure to stop the sale of ivory hankos. And it's not just African nations where the elephants are hunted that are making those demands. China cracked down on its own ivory trade in 2017, and now it wants Japan to do the same. Japanese attitudes still haven't changed. There isn't really a global environmental movement or wildlife conservation movement in Japan. People are kind of isolated from that. So Japan, this kind of idea that ivory isn't cool anymore, it hasn't really reached 
Japan yet. I think there's an element of defensiveness about it. I think that a few decades ago, this became associated in the mind of the government with the whaling issue. There's a sort of principle involved here that wildlife is not sacrosanct. Wildlife should be used sustainably. It can be harvested, it can be used, and provided it's done in a sustainable way, no animal, no species is off limits. So whales shouldn't be off limits. And if whales aren't off limits, elephants aren't off limits either. Simon Denyer is the Tokyo Bureau Chief for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Today marks exactly six months since we launched Post Reports. Check out my Twitter feed for some behind-the-scenes photos of the team and what we've been up to as we make the show every day. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.